Hello, world. Welcome back to another episode of Working Wisely with me, Jesse Van Maurick. I'm very excited to introduce our next guest. She has written for publications such as the Huffington Post, Entrepreneur Magazine, Indian Express, and News Corp India. Her name is Diksha Dutta, and her story is how a great career in journalism suddenly becomes a great career in the world of tech and structuring teams. Having worked as a journalist for a very long time, particularly a business journalist, she's seen how many companies run and how many CEOs lead their companies. And for that very reason, Diksha has a lot to say in terms of uh, what great leadership looks like, what a good team looks like, and what it means to work at a company without fear. On that note, here's our conversation. Hello, Diksha. Yes, Jesse. Thank you for joining me this Monday evening. Thank you for inviting me and giving a good start to the week on a Monday. So how's, uh, how's your work week materializing so far? Are you uh, looking forward to your week? Are you excited? Are you anxious? Are you everything? What is, what is going on in Diksha's mind? Well, I'm usually everything, always, every week. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. That sounds like quite a lot. That sounds like a, like a lot, yes, because I think like as a, as a person who works independently, mm-hmm. you don't know what's coming next. And especially someone like me who works with a lot of fast-paced um, companies. Uh, so I would say it's usually exciting. Like that's, that's the thing that follows throughout the week. Yeah. So basically the excitement of setting your own structure, if I can say that. Oh, absolutely. I think that's the, that's pretty much the foundation of how I work and, and one of the most challenging things rather. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So, so I want to, want to start with you start off as a, as a journalist in, in India mm-hmm. and now you're helping, uh, startups in Berlin, uh, with various, various things. Can you describe to me just roughly how, how you chose to move from India to Berlin and, and the career choice that came along with that. Can you tell me more about how that came to be? Okay, cool. I mean, that's, that's a long story, but, uh, we got time. We got time. Okay. So, uh, I, I think like there's, I wouldn't say that there's any kind of, uh, very direct connection between my journalism career and what I'm doing in Berlin right now, but it, the, the narrative still has uh, a lot of like cross connections rather. Okay. So, uh, Berlin's decision was like almost an overnight decision to come to Berlin because I met one of the startups when I was in India and they were looking for somebody who can help them with a small project. And that's how I ended up being here. But then one story led to another and I never went back. Having said that, um, I have been working on um, with a lot of startups in Berlin when I was in India. So there was a company which was trying to, um, you know, it was like a platform for Indian and German startups to work together. What was it called? It's it's called Wondernova. Wondernova. Wondernova, yes. Cool Actually, name. it's by by a very dear friend of mine. She is, uh, she is. A German, but she is actually what I mean. I always get confused because she calls herself like an India holic. She is German. An India holic who is German. Yes, yes. And kind of she an interesting is, phrase. Yeah, and she is Italian born, and um, she spends five months in India every year, 
I mean, at that time she used to when I met her. So and she's addicted to being in India. It sounds like yes, absolutely. Oh, she she's very like she's believes like really in what the future of Asia and you know what Asia is going to bring to the entire world, and she's very connected. And she actually handles the money of one of the biggest family offices in India. Okay. And that's how we met, and she was pretty much my connection to the Berlin startup scene. And also the German startup, the German Indian startup ex, uh, exchange program, which is uh, funded by the governments, uh, both the Indian and the German government. And uh, yeah, so that was pretty much my entry point to to understanding what's happening in Berlin. That okay, yeah, this is a place in Europe where a lot of startup activity is happening. And in one of the common events where all these people were, some of my friends and a few Berlin startups as well. I ended up meeting a startup from Berlin and that's how I came here. So I'd like to ask you a couple questions also really quick about um, some of the things you really like about uh, the Berlin startup scene and how, how startups are uniquely good in, in Europe and in Germany where we currently are. Okay, so I think Berlin is probably the next... Or no, it's actually the present hotbed for startups in Europe. And there are a number of reasons to it. Uh, first of all, integration is super easy in Berlin if you're attracting talent. Like to attract, you know, like everybody speaks about immigration in Germany and yes. Berlin. How it's so easy. And uh, I think that's been the biggest plus for startups that they have been able to attract a lot of talent in the country. So that's a big plus. Then the cost of living, which I feel that startups struggle a lot when they are scaling up in terms of, you know, like managing talent, the cost of uh, infrastructure, etc. So Berlin solves that. And apart from that, I think um, in terms of general quality of life and the, and the support from the government. One thing I've really appreciated about working in Germany um, even though, you know, I'm from Portland, Oregon, love that, love, love where I'm from, yeah. is that Germans and German institutions do take a pretty holistic approach on a lot of things. And, and there does seem to be more public-private partnership as a result of that. Mm -hmm. And there does seem to be more, more of a, an atmosphere of people wanting to do civic good in Berlin than I than I have seen in other places doesn't mean that there aren't people that want to do good things lots of other places mm -hmm. but but I think that there seems to be a unique um, status of um, making a positive sort of macro impact with your with your organization in, in Berlin that I I see less often in other places yeah that's that's a very fair point actually yes you do see more socially conscious startups in the city yeah, it doesn't, yes. it doesn't mean that if you, if you streamline someone's, um, you know, software needs or deliver yeah, things with yeah, drones that you're, yeah. that you're not doing a good for the world. But I mean, it does, it does seem like, um, at least I don't know how often it becomes reality, but it seems like the ambition to do civic good is, is very high here compared yes. to a lot of other, uh, a lot of other spots I've traveled around. Yes. Good point, Jesse. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, what else? What else is good about the the Berlin startup ecosystem for you? I think it's also the supporting factors in terms of um, the the support public gives, like the the government gives. So there's a body called the Berlin Partners, 
which has dedicated itself for strategic partnerships with startups and does help a lot of foreign talent to come into the country. And mm -hmm. their mission is actually to support the Berlin startup scene. And also the Senate has a separate, um, you know, department working on this. And a lot of independent bodies, I think. Silicon Alley is there. A lot of co-working spaces are there. Um, you also have Techstars in Berlin. And, you know, a lot of good st startups come out of Techstars. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's pretty much getting the hub of the next big startups. Yeah, and you're born. saying you're saying just as you've said about uh, about good company culture, it seems like good good city culture if you want to attract yeah. startups is, is is somewhat similar, you know. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, do do things that make it make people want to participate in something mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. be in it. Tell us the name of the organization that you're you're at. Yeah, so I work with startups on um, you know, at different levels. So I'm with the German Indian Startup Exchange program. It's called Jinsep. And they Gensep, okay. Yes, Gensep, yes. They facilitate pretty much, um, you know, how German startups can help Indian startups and Indian startups can help German startups and how they can really collaborate. So that's why I'm so actively, so that's why I know so much about immigration laws, etc. And then I'm also with the Startup Bootcamp in Berlin, which is for startups in the healthcare sector. So I'm a mentor with them. And uh, that's why I know like a lot of ideas come from the city and also a lot of people from other European countries want to come here and start up yes. as compared to their own country because, I mean, of course, they, they do feel that this is a more startup friendly environment. Yeah. And Germany is the biggest market in yes. Europe, right? So yes. most people yes. got a lot of money. Yeah. These are good things. But yeah, I mean... Um, that's a that's a very good point, and uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting to hear. It's always interesting to hear about different people say what they think the strength of, of a place that they move to is. Yes, yes. Okay, amazing. What do you what do you think it is about Berlin where all these startups showed up overnight? What do you think? What do you see about the place that attracts people who want to start companies, often in a tech setting? I mean, well, that's something I'm still. <laughs> Figuring out, are we all? You know, so it, it's it's. Uh, I I really don't think I have an answer to that, uh, because from the startup scene that I know, Berlin is very different. What makes it different? Is the positive difference or is the negative difference? It's, well, well, it's both. I mean, there can't be like a. It's it's you can't. I don't have a straight answer to whether it's a positive or a negative difference. It's both because when I came, it was. Uh, I mean, it, I really couldn't understand the um, the structure of startups here because the way Indian startups work is very similar to what you would find in the, the Silicon Valley culture. And that's, again, a lot of startups that I had been in touch with. That makes sense, too, because, I mean, a lot of, a lot of Indian people came to Silicon Valley and helped build those startups. Yes, so yes. it would make sense that those cultures are, yeah. are more aligned. Yeah. So actually, I mean, actually, the biggest difference is the work culture. So uh, it has its pros and cons, you know, like... Let's lay uh, them out. <laughs> yeah, I think first is like clearly in terms of um, like maybe say over aspirational or unrealistic uh, planning in organizations. Yeah? <laughs> like yeah. Where would that be in India? Yeah, absolutely. Or, or, in, or in Berlin? Yeah. 
No, that's in India. So overly, overly fantastical ideas in Silicon Valley and in India. Yeah, I think you end up like planning way ahead of um, of where the resources of the company can actually take you. You know, okay. and um, you have like a big, big vision, and everybody is dream to to work towards that, and it has its own cons because at times you're not very realistic in terms of what can be achieved. And you're not that structured. You don't realize that there is a structure and then you get disappointed a lot more. Okay. Do you think, for example, that people in Silicon Valley or India are are doing that because they truly have like a distorted, grandiose vision? Or do you think there's just a, a branding pressure and an image pressure and a hype pressure that, that incentivizes that kind of talking up that then then kind of falls back to earth when, when reality collides? Can you repeat that? Yeah, yeah. So uh, simply put, I mean, do you think that people are, um, do you think those startups that are in Silicon Valley in India are, are overstating their ambitions deliberately in order to get funding or attention? Or do you think they really are delusional in many cases? Oh, I mean, there's a simple answer to that. I mean, for a country like India, it's, it's like population. <laughs> like that's... Population. Population, yes. The, the mere number of people you have in the country. So it's, it ends up become like super, becoming very competitive mm-hmm. for the startup scene. Um, and the U- I mean, 2015 was a time when all the US funds were looking at India. And it was like the peak for startups. And everybody was getting money. So it, it made the market super competitive, like very competitive. And when there's a lot of competition, you end up pushing yourself. Gold rush thinking. Yes, yes, absolutely. So, I mean, if if employees in my organization are like not putting 80 hours a week and somebody else is putting 80 hours a week, that you know, they're bound to grow faster than me. But anyway, we come back to that again, which again, a myth that was broken when I came to Berlin. And I realized that probably that's not the ideal way to work. But I pretty much came from a culture where you really, really grind yourself like morning to evening. And if you're not doing that, you're not working hard enough and you're not loyal enough to your company. And Okay. Yeah. So it's it's like I think that was one of the biggest uh, differences that I saw in the way people work here. But I realized that... Yeah, so I mean, I can talk more in depth about it. Yeah, I mean, we're happy to be in Europe where there's vacation days and, you know, and and different work weeks perhaps than what's the norm in uh, some parts of Asia. But it's interesting the way you describe it as in the, the, the competition for money made people feel like they needed to work that long. So in that, is there an implication that the... The 80 hours was more of a, like an arbitrary, uh, measure than it was something that was really getting results? Like, well, Yes and no. I mean, we do have statistics that usually it's always 20% people in the company. I and mean, what's the exact statistic? I don't know, but there's this uh, thing that is always quoted, right? Like it's the 20, it's the top, it's like always the 20% people in the company that end up doing 80% of the work. Oh yes, I, I forget yeah. the the name of that of that law, but there's something about um, as you add more people to your yeah. organization, you have. Um, the, there are exponentially fewer people who are doing a larger percentage of the work. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, I mean, it doesn't really mean that if you're spending 80 hours, you are doing more work. But it's just something that you end up doing because that's 
that's what you feel is right. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. And you're saying in Berlin that is uh, not the case. I mean, no, I think that some startups do do yeah, that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I've met, uh, but, but I wouldn't say that that is something that is common in, in the startup scene, which is a good thing because I do feel that you end up being more productive if you're working lesser number of hours. Yeah. I feel that with myself at least. Like also, I don't know, maybe it's age or something, but I think in mid-twenties I was working like a lot more in terms of hours. And now um, I, I do feel that if I put like concentrated eight to nine hours a day, I'm, I'm done by that, you know, like, mm-hmm. and, and I'm more productive the next day. And I think there's a case to be made that, um, and we've said it in other, other podcasts before, that, that decision-making and labor sometimes don't have the same demands on a person's uh, time. So, for example, you can make the wrong decision about what direction to go in as a company because mm-hmm. everybody's maxed out. Um, and then if you're going in the wrong direction, it doesn't really matter if everybody's working 80 hours a week, if, yeah. they're, do- if they're working on the wrong thing, right? Okay. Yeah, also, like, I think it is an exaggeration, maybe 16, yeah. Well, depends who you talk to. And there's also all those people who, who, who think, uh, you know, they count, like, networking and drinks in their 80 hours, right? So there's this, you know. Well, technically it is work, isn't it? Because it's taking, like, so much of your um, energy. I yeah. do feel it is work. Like, it, I, I do feel that is work. Yeah, for your liver, at least. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's true. Okay, well, let's 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 take it back a little more more to you. So then, um, you were working. You said you were working crazy hours in, in India in journalism, correct? Well, uh, initially in journalism, yes, because when you are a cub reporter, is that a term used globally? Like being a cub reporter? I mean, we use it in. I, I unfortunately am a philistine and can't confirm or nor deny the, <laughs> okay. the validity of that phrase. <laughs> but that's like super cute. So when I was a, so I was called a cub reporter. A cub so, reporter. So yeah. Is that is there like does that mean there's like a, a papa bear reporter? Yeah, there is. So you just you they probably know. don't call it that. <laughs> no, they don't call it that. Okay. Yeah, but that would be cute too, you know. So, I mean, they just, uh, so you're just like a cub assisting a senior person. And I mean, that's, that's pretty much like when you start your journalism career, it's, it's, it's really hectic. It's really hectic. And you get all the shitty work from transcribing. Yeah, you get the bad stories, right? Oh, absolutely. All the time. And leads that nobody wants to do, uh, sectors that nobody wants to cover. But I think once I really got into business, um, that was like, I was like, a fish in the pond. I mean, I really, really fish in the sea. What do you call it? You were, you were a, a big fish in a small pond. You found your niche. No, it's, yeah, I found my niche, yes. You, okay, let's so, take the fish metaphor away. Okay, cool. But, 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 but yeah, you, you found your niche in journalism. So business journalism was your, was your interest. Yes, I think interest, um, well, of course, when you get out of journalism school, you do want to do a lot of journal, other kind of journalism. But I think business journalism is something which I felt I was best at. Okay. Yeah. That's fair. Why do you think you were best at ju- like business journalism as opposed to any other crime? Country? <laughs> crime, uh, okay. the environment, uh, you know, who knows? Yeah, but environment so still collides with business, right? Everything so, else. That's yeah. very true. Yeah. So crime is or civil or you know something like that. I I think like it's uh, it's something that. I was too emotionally attached to 
if I started covering stuff like that in a country like India. I think that's a really interesting thing to say because normally, especially in like North America, is probably yeah. the king of it. We often say like, uh, you know, follow your passion, do what you love. You know, like like you don't normally hear people in in uh, North America saying, um, "Oh, you seem pretty emotionally invested in this. Don't do it." Um, so, so um, can you elaborate a little more? Emotionally invested, yes, but emotionally affected, no. Oh, okay. Okay, so infected versus in- invested. Yeah. Affected, yeah. So I mean, it's it's not something that sh- it should affect your everyday life, you know. Um, and and I feel that the way crime is covered by media houses um, globally as well, from what I hear from my friends uh, everywhere, and uh, in in countries like India as well, is something that I couldn't really um, relate to as a journalist. Was it sensationalist? Of course it is, yes. I mean, we all know that. Like, everybody wants to read certain kind of news, and there has been so many studies regarding that, that, you know, like, I mean, people really enjoy reading negative news. Yeah, there's, and, there's a, that's true. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's, you always may have to make it sound, make it sound like that. So, yeah, it's something that I couldn't relate to a lot. I'm, and um, business was something that I had studied. I understood companies well, and um, newspapers are always looking for people who have a little bit of background in balance sheets and numbers and understand annual reports, and that was an area I was very comfortable with, and I liked analyzing stuff. So that's how I got into business reporting. Okay, and that and you also know if, if you're a business reporting journalist, you can go in and they can trust that you can articulate what they're communicating to you about what they're doing, if they're a business or... Yes. Okay. Um, could I ask you then, then you started doing some coverage of German startups, right? And you were keeping track of these differences that we were, we were discussing earlier, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And then at some point, uh, you decided to stay. Sounds like the decision to stay in Berlin wasn't made in India, but it was made in Berlin when you were already here. Yes. And at that point, you were still working as a journalist, right? No, no. So my full-time journalism career ended in 2015. 2015. Okay. Yes. What different times, 2015. (laughs) I don't think I even have to elaborate on all the ways we thought differently about the world in 2015. (laughs) So, yeah, that is when my journalism career, like full-time journalism career ended. So you, 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 you stepped out after like, like clickbait was totally just taken off everywhere on a level no one's ever seen. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think it was a good time to quit. Actually, if you ask me, at least in India, I don't know like globally what what you're referring to, but 2015, so I had already been in journalism for six years and that was all print. No, it was three years News Corp India, actually. So So News Corp India. Yes. So is that Rupert Murdoch's News Corp? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So they did have a lot of online publications and one of them was VC Circle, which was covering like uh, venture capital in India. What was the tone of it? Like what was sort of like their attitude? (laughs) It was absolutely writing about deals in the startup scene deals yes like in terms of who x is investing in y okay so if you didn't get that kind of those kind of stories you were not really a star reporter hot investor gossip yeah and always i think that's always been the case with business journalism i mean now i don't know like this trend of breaking stories is maybe not as sexy as it used to be but if you really want to be a journalist who is known, you need to get like this information 
before anybody else. Did you get any um, any like uh, pressure from PR people from certain businesses to report things in a certain light? Always. I'm asking because we have a PR person uh, from a startup coming on uh, soon, and I. Always. I think that happens <laughs> even now because I still. Um, PR always happens. Yeah, yeah. I still freelance for a lot of uh, publications, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, that that still happens. Okay, and so then. You made the switch. You felt like it was the right time. It sounds like sensationalism, among other things, were was part of why you were kind of ready to leave journalism. What else maybe prompted you to leave journalism? Well, I think it was like very straightforward in my case. Uh, first of all, the thing was that print was really dying. You know, like the future of print. Yeah, I mean, there's a statistic in the U.S. that you know local newspapers are dying faster than the bees. So I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely yeah. that. So print was dying, um, and I had already tried digital. So I didn't know, like, do after ten years, is this is this industry going to serve me? So one was like the practical reason. Uh, the second reason was that the kind of stories I was doing. You know, I, I mean, I I completely stopped enjoying uh, breaking stories on uh, funds investing in startups or somebody, you know, a startup shutting down or somebody exiting a company or making money and you know this kind of stuff like it was not exciting me anymore and it had been what like six seven years of doing that already okay so uh so i thought okay what next uh this is something i can do even if i'm not a full-time journalist and i can do more meaningful journalism more long-form journalism which i do now like i analyze companies more uh you know like more in depth and it's not just about how much money they have raised so I, I thought that this I can do even if I'm not employed with a news agency or a news company because then you could focus on what you thought had more value yes absolutely absolutely okay so then that prompted some changes and then what kinds of what kinds of things do you like to focus on now now that you're not uh, bound into the hot deals of uh, Indian investor capital well now now definitely um you mean in terms of writing or in terms of the like all the things I do? How about just the subjects for a start in terms of writing about things? So I definitely still write a lot of company stories. Um, but there is more freedom in terms of the companies I choose to write about. I mean, um, after coming to Berlin as well, I did a few company stories in Berlin. One of them was on Blinkist and I think they, are, they were an interesting startup to write about. And... Um, and yes, I'm very interested in how company cultures work. So that is something. Okay. Yeah. Company cultures. Company culture, yes. Because um, I, I think that that's something, or leadership rather, in, in any organization. Mm-hmm. Because um, investors will tell you this, and founders will tell you this, and employees will tell you this, that it doesn't matter if you have all the funds you need, or you have the best business strategy, or you have like a you know, everything like the best team, but if you have bad leadership, your company will fail whatsoever. Okay. I think that's a valid point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that um obviously, especially you know, in our in our current world there's I mean, maybe you disagree, but I, I sometimes feel like there's a lot of um there's a lot of CEO worship. As in, you know, there's very high profile, yeah. I think in the United States, maybe it's, there, there is some sensationalism around um, large purchases that mm-hmm. make the news, but I think there's also kind of cults of personality that emerge around 
um, certain successful people. And, and I think that can sometimes create, um, not for everybody, but for many people, this kind of a sense that, you know, um, to be consequential is, is sometimes more, more venerated than, um, like how you get there or, or, or what things are important to you, you know? And, and I think that, so to use your example, um, it is interesting to kind of look into a company and what its culture is. And that's not really something that, um, has been talked about in the media until fairly recently. I mean, when you think about it. Yeah. I mean, the problem is that, um, culture is still, um, okay. Yeah. Culture is still something that people, um, really don't understand and it, it comes in a very materialistic package for most companies in terms of rituals and the things they should be having as a checklist. Okay, and this is this yeah. is really good. So I, I want to ask you then, um, based on your observations of the companies you've written about, what do most companies get wrong about putting together a good culture? I think the, the most important thing in any organization is that it should have the flexibility of, uh, and I'm saying this, this out of experience because I've worked with some really, really good leaders, including this friend of mine that I'm talking about, Angela, um, who works with a lot of Indian and German startups. So I think the, the, the basic is that it should have the flexibility of any employee in the organization to be able to talk to the top if so-called top you know without hesitation like in terms of okay approachability which which lacks in most organizations okay so the idea is make a hierarchy more flat or if not totally flat at least accessible so you're getting feedback from people absolutely yeah. absolutely so and and why do you why do you think that's a difficult thing for people to to put together or what do you think if that if that's the best approach from your observations, why why don't more companies do it if it's if it's working so well and it's so much better? Well, I think first, like the most important thing is that it, it's built over time. Like it, it it can't really build, you know, it can't be built um, overnight. It's like more an overtime process. So you can't be like we're doing this next week and then yeah, we're no, absolutely not, absolutely not. And it has to go across um, levels. So, uh, I mean, I can think but, of, I can only think of experiences, you know, where I was like, where I worked and it was very difficult. Like it was very easy. Sorry, not difficult. It was very easy to talk to people at the top. Um, what results did you see that made the look better? I mean, maybe everybody feels better about themselves, but did those companies succeed um, in other, in other ways too? I mean, like. They do. They yes, do. Yeah. Absolutely. Good, good. Yes. I mean, it's it's like, you know, like, um, I don't know if you've heard of this phrase, but it's like building fearless organizations. Fearless organizations. Fearless organizations. And it's um, on, um, there's a very good book on psychological safety, where it says that people should feel challenged in an organization, but they should never fear in an organization. So there should oh, never okay. be a fear to... To do a mistake or fear to talk, um, to you know, fear talk. of offending someone. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. But at the same time, they should definitely feel very challenged every day they are coming to work. Okay. So, uh, and how can this be built where people feel that they have access to 
um, to to everybody in the organization. I mean, I'm not saying like access in terms. Of course, it's if it's a company of ten thousand people, you really or if it's like Facebook, you can't have access to like Mark Zuckerberg as you know. Um, no. Or maybe you can. I don't know how they work inside Facebook, but I'm sure that with all these technology, you know, these tools that are used in organizations these days. Access has become much easier, but at, at the same time, access has become more difficult. Yeah, as in you, um, just because everyone's in reach of each other doesn't mean that, um, you know, there's also more demands on people's time doesn't mean that they can answer everybody's calls. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. But there has to be some mechanism. I mean, I don't know, like, yo, the, the voice to be heard, like, the voice has to be heard. Maybe not, or even if it goes through hierarchy, it has to be heard. Yeah, I mean, I think hierarchy maybe maybe is to some degree inevitable because different people commit different amounts of time and resources to organizations yeah. and have different decision-making roles. But I think what's good about what you're saying is, you know, if you are in a position at the top of a hierarchy or the middle of a hierarchy or the bottom of a hierarchy, there's there's damage that is done when you don't know what's going on outside of your uh, your link in the chain. Yeah, right? absolutely. Because then it's, it's it's hard to understand the direction of, of where things are going and where the cohesion is, right? Because all of these things then, um, I mean, I think everybody knows what it's like to interact with a company where uh, maybe you're a customer of theirs or something like that, but where you get the profound feeling the left arm doesn't know what the right arm is doing, you know? Yeah. And and that seems to be to some degree what, what you're saying and I, I want to get to a point where we talk about some of the other things you're doing outside of journalism now so since coming to Berlin you've, you've branched out quite a lot and also a little bit before um, before yeah. that so what 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 other uh, fields did you branch out into and how are they informed by um, your journalism okay sure but I think I would also like to add a bit on the last thing that you go just for discussed. it go for it I mean I think there's always an example that I give companies is that Imagine if as a CEO, you're having a town hall with all your employees. Okay, a town and, hall. Yes. Um, and if any of the employee is not able to speak their mind in that gathering, there is something wrong about your culture. Yeah, that's fair. Because, I mean, as you said, this would be someone who would be fearful of speaking absolutely, their mind. Absolutely. Okay. So so now to your question to what are the other, other areas I've branched into. Uh, I think Berlin as a city has offered me a lot in terms of the things I've, I'm really passionate about and the things I really wanted to do. Um, and I think journalism spoils you as a... Journalism spoils you? Yeah, it spoils you, absolutely. Because I don't know what other fellow journalists would say about journalism culture, you know, media culture and media companies, but I think it's the best culture to work in. Really? Because, yeah, absolutely. Do you think that has to do with, with like uh, the nature of journalistic work or do you think it's just because certain kind of personality is drawn to journalism? Both, both. It's both. Yeah, so first, basically, of course, it's the nature. It's high pressure every day, right? That doesn't always create a good, good environment, high pressure, does it? I mean, finance people are under <laughs> high pressure. Are they? Do they have as great a culture as journalists? Yeah, but, but you do learn how to cope with it every day, right? So yeah, so maybe maybe the, the the form of your coping mechanism might be a maybe a means of yeah, deciding absolutely. the culture, right? <laughs> so it's it's like nobody takes things to their heart. I mean, nobody gets offended easily because it's at least in the newspaper I worked in. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I can just talk of my experiences. Certainly. And I can't speak for the entire industry, but yes, but I think in in 
newsrooms, you are working under so much stress every day that you know that your editor is in a bad mood because of something that has happened and tomorrow is going to be a new day. Okay. And it has nothing personal because we are all working with this, you know, for this newspaper that is going to come out tomorrow mm-hmm. and it has nothing to do with like of course there are power battles but you know that your your loyalty is with the story that's going yeah i think that's something that any organization can relate to because i think there is this point with colleagues and you know we we, we have discussions about it at our yeah. company too where you you cross this bridge where you you're comfortable enough with someone where you or you discover that you know like like a frustration or something is yeah. not um yeah someone's frustrated the first instinct is not um it's because of me right which you know some people get when they first start working somewhere or something like that but then as you as you work with people in more things and see them in tough situations you're you're less inclined to to feel uh yeah yeah, personally personally wounded if someone's having a tough time right absolutely secondly it made me like super open to criticism because i mean i was because you know, like when I mean, you start your career, career your stories are like rehashed and rewritten, and, and you're working with bad material, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you're even if you're a decent writer, your story's probably gonna suck, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, for some people, you're not you, of course. Suck. I mean, I've read your yeah. things. Your things are very good, but I mean, obviously, there's a learning curve when you you have to work with you know not the best story content because you're lower on the on the totem pole, and then someone is giving you advice on how to uh, improve your Absolutely. improve your stuff. Yeah, but as a writer, you will always suck for some people. Like, you know, your writing is always going to be bad for some people. So you accept that. True. And, and I think it's, and, and that is something I apply in every job I do. You're, someone's going to think it sucks. Absolutely. And, you know, like, it's, it's, there's something wrong if, if everybody thinks that you don't suck. Like, it's. <laughs> that's a great, okay, that's a great line. Can you, can you just please say that one more time? Because I think it's worth saying again. Yeah, I think that, like, there's something wrong if everybody thinks you're perfect. Because, like, no, that's not cool. Because what what after that? But, I mean, isn't this the interesting part? Because I think um, that's... Doesn't the, the desire to be perfect also create the fear dynamic that you're personally saying is a, is a big harm to a company? It's if people want to be perfect, they're afraid when they do make a mistake, which they will because they're a person, right? Um, yeah, sorry, what what is your question? So my question, I, it wasn't a question, it was more of a point, but, I mean... You were talking earlier about, about, you know, a fearful organization is a less effective organization. Definitely. And then, um, yeah, and, and the expectation of perfection, I think, is this seems to be a recipe for people being afraid to speak up about things. Yeah, yeah, that's true. What are we, what are we doing in terms of uh, what we're working on now? What have you been working yeah, on so, beyond journalism? Cool. So, yeah, I think, like, uh, so the point I was making was that journalism spoiled me, but at the same time it taught me a lot of things and made me unemployable for certain kind of jobs unemployable <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> because you have so much of your mind you know you have a mind of your own and you want to work in a certain way and you can only work in organizations that are very open so now those I'm, are good values though right i mean this is if you're going to become idiosyncratic over time because of your job that's a good a good direction okay, to go you. right you know yeah, that makes me feel good well yeah because <laughs> i really think that if you if you calcify as a result of aging you might as well do it um i mean calcifying your ways not physically mm-hmm. but uh what i mean to say is if you if you harden your expectations you know if you're if you're around people that that thrive on criticism and, and teach you how to work in, in stressful environments that's that's gonna probably be be a good thing in terms of informing your values, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
So, yeah, I mean, extending to what you said, I mean, now I do most things that I'm really, truly passionate about. Um, I mean, writing and journalism will always be a part of me, no matter whatever I do. Mm-hmm. And it gifted me with the ability to actually understanding companies very well, not just from the external side, but also the internal side and meet internal, you know, like how they work internally and having interviewed so many CEOs in my career, I think leadership is something uh, that that I really wanted to understand at a deeper level. And in Berlin, um, I started working with a few companies in terms for their company culture, how they communicate internally, how they look at some sensitive topics, mm-hmm. how those topics can be, um, how they are also important business decisions, you know, at the same time. How actually having a team that is healthy and happy and uh, is, is going to affect your productivity and eventually revenues. And um, I can actually look at both the sides now that is like completely number driven and one that is completely dependent on emotional intelligence. And I look at combining these two sides um, for companies and I do that through um, workshops, which I offer them. Okay. Yeah. So that is something I started doing two years back in Berlin. I did do that in India. No, I think a year back in Berlin. I did that in India quite a bit, more so with university students. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's been something that has given me a lot of fulfillment and also given me the opportunity to actually combine um, my knowledge in, in two absolutely different areas. That is like learning and development and business-driven, no, sorry, like fast-paced, decision-driven businesses. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I think it's a it's a valuable point. You know, I mean, every time you watch a, like an American movie about the Washington Post, you've always got you know somebody chain smoking and yelling, and there's this stressful environment, and the yeah. paper's got to get out, and and there is a there is a very huge overlap with uh, yeah people in tech where there's uh, new integrations and interfaces and, and and things to know about and crank out quickly, but you still have to keep the quality level strong. So there's a similar yeah. a similar sense of urgency that I can totally see in terms of company dynamics. Um, being, you know, a good a good comparison for for uh, small companies working in, in technology. Mm-hmm. So when you and when you spoke to these uh, CEOs, did you find that CEOs who were doing well um, had radically different uh, ways of thinking, or did you find that the ones that were successful um, had a, a lot of things in common? Okay, that's that's a good question. <laughs> That's what you always say when you have to think about the answer a bit. That's good. Think about okay. the answer. Well, we got time. Yeah, yeah. So similarities in people who are successful. So you've probably and, interviewed. Sorry, yeah. you've interviewed successful CEOs and unsuccessful CEOs, probably, right? Yeah, yeah. Would you say they, that the ones who are successful, just focusing on them for now, did they all have a similar type A personality and a million dollar smile, or did they? Were they all radically different in their perceptions of themselves and their company? I I think the most common thing in people who actually make it is that they always um, they always remember and admit the mistakes they have made in the past, or you know what went wrong, why, and they accept it and acknowledge it. Whereas there are some leaders who 
feel that some, those mistakes happened because of X, Y, Z, wrong timing, you know, wrong hire, wrong funds supporting them, or, or you know, etc., mm-hmm. etc. But the people who actually I feel are able to move on to the next decision, like even after, and and I don't really know what you mean by successful CEOs because for me a lot of people who have like failed a lot of times are also successful, and they really look at those. Uh, Failures with with you know they they own up to it. That's a valid point. No, yeah. successful is is uh, I, I try to keep it open because I was curious yeah. what you, what your answer would be yeah. about it. I didn't want to I didn't want to imply it was uh, money or this or that. Um, but no, that's 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 a valid point. And then and then the ones who are less successful by whatever measure. I mean, do you do you see similar qualities in, in CEOs that maybe mislead? Um, yeah, absolutely. Is. I think most of the like, I mean, of those come I, quicker. That answer's like yeah. definitely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can I can't take names, but Certainly I can not. definitely tell you that there are, I mean, three to four companies that I studied quite deeply, and I, you know, it's like over the course of two three years, and it was absolutely because of bad leadership that they, you know, the ship sunk. Yeah, absolutely, because in people leave you, your co-founders leave you. Nobody can work with you, you know, you don't have answers for the fund. Um, you are very intelligent, you know a lot, um, you know, you're Harvard educated. I mean, whatever you need, the, whatever checklist is needed for you to be like the poster boy, the, the poster child of the startup scene. But if you cannot get along with people, you will not make it. And there are three, four cases in which I feel that these people were so damn good in knowledge, but they absolutely lacked working with different people. First, co-founder mm. disputes, absolutely in all three cases. Second, um, company culture couldn't couldn't like retain employees for a longer time. Okay. And yeah, so these were the two things that and and yeah, third is of course like not owning up to to their own to their own behavior and mistakes, and rather it's always the. CTO's fault or it's always you know that they hired the wrong person or it's always that something happened or it was bad timing yeah yeah I want to show you I want to show you a statistic and, and tell me what you think of it and whether you think okay. it's going to be good cool. or bad for company culture so um, with the exception of I think, um, I think the United States and um, I guess France and I think I think it's still also true for the UK most industrialized countries in the next uh, 15 to 20 years are going to deal with um, a working age population that is smaller than their current one. Mm-hmm. And, you mean younger? Uh, yeah, as in, as in countries that have had fewer children um, than, you know, in 20, 30 years' time mm-hmm. will have fewer working age people as well, right? It's, it's one way of predicting the future that we can always predict to be correct because we'll know how many adults there are based on how many kids. There won't be more, right? And companies will not, there won't, there won't be as many people to go around to work somewhere. It seems like a company would have to do more to convince uh, someone, like supply and demand. They would have to do more to attract the employee and the employee will have more leverage. I mean, that's still happening, Jesse. Yeah, it's, it's already happening in, in the yeah. tech sector where there's already a labor shortage, right? I mean. Yeah, that's already happening. But does that mean offering a better culture? No, I don't I, think That's my so. question to you. No, yeah. no, no, not necessarily, you know. Do you think there's lots of cheap perks? Because I notice a lot of startups, they offer uh, like uh, healthy snacks and this sort of stuff or like a, a beanbag chair in the office yeah. and these things get elevated. Yes, um, they do. 
but they no, not necessarily mean mean good culture and people are going to stick to you because if somebody else offers this they are going to go for this so it it again come back to or comes back to um more real things that that companies are offering like real connections and real feel good factor that okay i really want to go and work with these people yeah because i yeah. speak to i've spoken to a lot of people who've been at different companies and sometimes you know when the when the company is a little too proud of their ping pong table yeah, people yeah. feel pandered to absolutely absolutely i don't think that can retain like really uh, good talent the talent you really actually want because that talent is going to go if that is offered somewhere else yeah no for sure for yeah. sure and then so when it comes to your workshops and the things that you've been doing with other companies yeah. based on what you've learned from other companies as well. Yeah. Um, what's the first thing you tell people about company culture? What's the, what's the thing that you, you want people to know right off the bat? I think, okay, the first thing, again, like whenever I start my workshops is that, I mean, I don't know how you're going to, you know, like come to work tomorrow, but at least today, this is a space where everybody is going to be able to talk about the things that they need to talk about. Uh, and I'm never the one giving advice in my workshops. Okay. Never. But it's more like I'm the person because nobody knows the company better than the employees in the organization. And the biggest challenge is that those voices are not able to come out because of X, Y, Z reasons. Okay. And why you get a facilitator like me is that... I'm able to make those voices heard that very day and, you know, continue the momentum for the for the coming days. And which is, I think, the basis of a company culture. Okay. Yes. That's, um, yeah. That's that's very, very cool. And I, and I think also very much ties well into into journalism and that you are you're there to find something out. You're not there to preach yeah, something. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um and then I know a lot of that has to do in, in your case with um Diversity, and that's a huge part of company culture that's very important to you and to a lot of people, and um, and is growing in importance among companies. What are, what do you what do you say about diversity when when you're doing um, your workshops? Yeah, I think diverse, diversity uh, and inclusivity, which is almost like you know they are they are used together. The words used together often are and. I think that's the most misunderstood concept. I, I think I'm inclined to agree. Yes, uh, because it comes to so when you ask them, okay, how diverse you are, and they come with you know they come with statistics in terms of number, you know in terms of men, women, um, genders, nationalities, um, people of color, or whatsoever. Yeah, everybody's and, seen the uh, everybody's seen the cliche uh, corporate yeah, stock photo absolutely. of a black woman, a white guy, an Asian guy, an absolutely. Arab guy, and they're all smiling, pointing at the same computer. Yeah. And, it... and I think the very reason it comes to me, uh, even though I don't seek a lot of <laughs> work in conducting diversity workshops, because I don't think that's the basis of my workshops. I mean, my workshops are more about culture and communication, and rest everything is a subset of it. Yeah. The very reason that diversity comes to me is because they look at me and they feel, being a person of color, they feel that that is something that I should be doing. But I never really want to, I never really, you know, like feel that that's my primary identity as a coach or a facilitator. 
No, certainly not. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, I, I wanted to make that point clear because, um, and, and that's why my frustration lies with people not understanding what diversity is. So, diversity for me is not just, uh, you know, it's, 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 I think there are the tangible, um, there's a tangible side to diversity, what you can see, how people are different in a room. It's, it's visible to your naked eye, you know, that, okay, this, you know, this is a diverse group. And then there are, like, non-tangible, like, as, you know, side to diversity, which you really can't see, like, in terms of political views, how people would think. Some people are very daring in an organization. Some people are not so daring. Some people want to, uh, some people always speak their minds. Some people take a lot of risks. Some people are shy. Uh, some are that loyal. Some maybe are not that loyal. And, you know, that is actually the real diversity that makes what makes an organization diverse and taking brave decisions. Mm -hmm. So, and you should have these kind of people in the organization. And actually, there's a study by Harvard Business Review which says that, um, okay, sorry, I have to get back to you on this because I don't remember it by heart. But I think the very essence of that report was that uh, it's not necessary. It is not necessary that if you have people from different nationalities in your team, it will necessarily lead to more diverse decisions. Definitely not. Yeah. But if you have people who are high on the non-tangible um, aspects of diversity. Like in different terms personality? Of what they, in terms of how they think. Okay. How they look at the world. I mean... You know, there can be a person from minority, but not being very pro-minority. So let's um, let's let's pick that apart a bit because that's that's a valuable point. I mean, do you see examples where people take some forms of diversity into account, at, at, but but not others? Ah, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, that happens all the time because still you have to. I mean, but that is okay. I don't think there's a problem with that because. Uh, I mean, we, we've had a lot of discussion about quotas, but I think that any person who joins a company should, should um, you know, have that basic standard that's needed in terms of skills for the company. Yeah, yeah. I would add, though, I, I do think there is, there is a case of groupthink that happens in companies where everybody comes from the same couple business schools. There's too high a standard on maybe someone mm. going to an elite school. Where, you know, you could have a brilliant person who doesn't have the same formal education. Like, I have a friend who's really, really good at yeah, IT, yeah. and he did not go to university, you know. And yeah. then, then there's also the opposite problem. Then you also have people um, who have startups and go like, I didn't learn anything in college. I just, you know, I, I just yeah. started coding, you know. So you also have that, right? So, I mean, it's a, it's a mix. But, I mean, I think um, diversity, and tell me I'm wrong, but I think part of it is also... Um, people with different educational backgrounds or different or who grew up in different yeah, neighborhoods exactly. and social classes, um, no matter how racially diverse, um, you know, yeah. aren't as easy to measure. Yeah. So that's again back to the point I was making, right? I yes. Mean, in terms of non-tangible things that you can't see about people. So that study says that if in a group you have people who are maybe not like, you know, tangibly as diverse, like visible factors of diversity, but are very diverse in their views and how they think about things, that group ends, ends up taking like better business decisions. Yes. Yes. So it's not necessary that if on paper you have people from X number of nationalities, gender, blah, 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 
uh, they will always end up taking divorce decisions. I mean, I know this is a very controversial view that I'm giving right Go now. Go for it, though. It makes yeah. because, because, I mean, there is also statistics which say that, um, and that's around, I think, I don't know, again, I don't have the percentage with me, but if you have people, you definitely need, like, one member from, like, if you're entering a particular geography mm-hmm. as a company, you definitely need in the sales team one person from that nationality before taking those decisions. Okay, that makes sense. Yes, yes. I mean, I think the other thing in what you're saying that I think is valuable too is I don't think that you're saying that uh, racial and gender diversity is not important, but that, you know, having a shallow quota is not um, a solution in itself. Absolutely, yeah. Because I think, yeah. I mean, obviously people talk about diversity in all the ways because there are groups of people who have uh, historically had far fewer opportunities that does have an impact on how they're perceived, right? Mm-hmm. And that is yeah. something that people should strive to fix, but... Um, it's also fair to say that, you know, color is more visible than social classes, yeah, is, yeah. is more visible than personality, is more visible yeah. than, uh, you know, soft skills, transferable skills, things like this. And, uh, I mean, but I think this is also the source of why so many companies can, can be uh, cynical about diversity too. It's not just the, uh, the shallow view, but they go, wow, there's so many things I must consider and uh, I have to take a long view on this. And, um, yeah. You know, I think many companies, I'm sure there's some people that say like, Hey, like, you know, ideally I'm selling this company by Christmas and I, you know, that's, that's my goal, right? Like I'm not going to be able to create the, the, yeah. the great working environment. <laughs> I'm not saying it's a yeah. good thing or a bad thing on that front, but I mean, it's, 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 uh, I think, I think it's a massive challenge. And I think it's also interesting to hear from you that, um, as a person of color, people just assume you have a, have a, unique desire to talk about diversity yeah, during, during a completely different workshop. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like most of the speaking opportunities that came to me last year, uh, and, and I think there was a point where I had to start saying no to it because I'm still a business person, you know, I still help businesses like taking, I help your business taking better decisions on, on the basis of like your company culture, communication and soft skill, not because I'm a diversity speaker or I can speak on diversity. Like, it's just a subset. So you, did you really feel like some people were approaching you just to, just because like to have like the Indian girl talk about diversity? Is that a thing that happened? Uh, I mean, it, 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 I think, I don't know, but, but there was a point where I felt that this is something that is not like, it's a subset of, of what I do. It's, it's not the main thing I do. I mean, I love talking about it. Why not? I mean, it's a sensitive topic and I feel, uh, but you don't want to do it when you feel that you're given this opportunity because of how you look. Yeah. And that's a, that's a thing about, you know, people's prejudices, right? As you know, sometimes they're not so clear. You just go like, why is this person emphasizing the diversity point so much when, yeah, when my workshop is about company yeah, culture more yeah. broadly? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So. I mean, you, you spend a lot of time working in, in journalism, getting that niche of business journalism, coming to appreciate yeah. a lot of things about the pace and the honesty. And then when you started doing business journalism, you also developed this deep interest in company culture and, and you, you now use your observations of what's effective at other companies to uh, encourage people who work at startups, yeah. particularly in Berlin, yeah. to, to share their views, to participate in, 
and things that help bring some of uh, some flatness to the hierarchy and some accessibility between decision makers and people doing other work. And so I'm, I'm curious, just besides having an interest, what's, what's your motivation to make, um, make a work environment better for someone you don't know? I think I was very close. <laughs> okay, so like, why do you, why do you care? I mean, this is leading to you know a lot of uh, things that ideally I shouldn't be talking about. But yeah, I think uh, <laughs> <laughs> ideally, yeah, yeah, ideally I shouldn't be talking about. But it does come from a space where I think I have had the opportunity to actually work with the best leaders uh, in terms of how they treated organizations. Okay. And then also have the opportunity to work with some people who didn't know anything about it. And people were, and, and I could see how unhappy employees were, you know, some, yeah. some of my co-workers. And then I realized, okay, this is a serious problem. Like sometimes, you know, like how if never, if burnout never happens to you, you don't realize like it's a real thing. Yeah, yeah. Like, you, yeah. I mean, for me, for in the Indian, I never knew that like winter depression is a thing. So, I mean. Yeah, you have to, you have to come, come to the Nordics or come to Germany, <laughs> experience that winter depression. So for me, like I had no idea that company culture that can actually affect people in such a bad way as it was affecting certain people that I knew in my life or I knew in some companies that I worked for. And I realized, okay, this is something I've done in the past and something I understand deeply. And, you know, uh, people's skills come naturally to me. And um, and you've seen good leadership. Like you've seen, like you said, you've seen what good leadership looks like. Absolutely, yes. So then, I mean, it makes sense that um, if you, if you know what that looks like, you definitely notice when it's not there. Yes, yes. So I've seen the both, both sides, you know, and that was my motivation. And, and I was close to being a victim of it, you know, and I was like, okay, this is something I really need to need to address. Because yeah. like a, a crazy CEO can... Yeah. Like, okay, no, that's very... No, that's not the right way to say it. But like... Um, a crazy anybody <laughs> can be problematic. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Can I ask you if 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 leaders have a, an obligation to their people and their organization to to hear them out and do things? What what obligations do people on the other side have? What empl- what what obligations does an employee have to to leadership? What do mid level people have uh, as an obligation to like people above them and below them? I think honesty. Okay. Honesty at all all levels. Uh, honesty in terms of I know these are very difficult conversations. Employees always want want to keep their bosses happy and say yes. Oh my God, you're doing great work. And you know, like in terms of we are with you. And even when you know in your heart, because you know you're doing that work every day, and you know that if this was done differently, it would um, it would have better results. So in terms of honesty, to always keep your views. Honesty in terms of your own goals. Honesty in terms of uh, how you look. You know, at your role in the organization. I think that's. And accountability, which is super tough, yeah, but but very important. And I have had the opportunity to have it with some, you know, with some bosses. And when I couldn't have it, I realized that okay, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, it's important. I mean, I think you know, you know, to, uh, we uh, we actually as a company had well, I had a retrospective today. We have them every yeah. couple of weeks, and it's a, it's a thing I like about being here is you know that, it, and it's not like everything's happy, and it's not like everything's always resolved in in ten minutes. But when it's done, it feels 
it, it normally feels good. Like, I, I mean, maybe even cathartic, right? Because you yeah. get to, you, you have the relief of knowing at least where everybody feels like they stand, you know? And, Absolutely. And I think that feeling is kind of a priceless because I, I think it's often the case that there's a stereotype that, you know, if everything doesn't get resolved, it's, it's somehow a, a failure. But I think it's, it's, it's almost more important to, um, extinguish growing paranoia of not knowing how other people are, are feeling about things. And, yeah. and, uh, that's, that's something that, uh, you know, it takes time. It takes resources, but it, it's, 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 uh, it takes a lot more resources if, 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 uh, someone expresses they're unhappy about something that's built up over a longer Absolutely. period of time, yeah. right? Conflict is very healthy. Conflict is healthy. Yes, absolutely. I think so. Even in my workshops, I mean, if there's no conflict, I feel that it's gone bad, you know. It's gone bad if there's no conflict? Absolutely. You look for the tension? Yes. Do you ever yes. scare it up to make to yes. bring some bring some more energy I mean, to it? No, I haven't done that. I mean, I haven't... It, there was, like, no fuses I didn't to have light? to try. I didn't have once? to try. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. No worries. I didn't have to try that as a telling... <laughs> Is it telling? Boy. It was already there. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's excellent though. I mean, I don't know. That's, that's good. What about, um, I don't know. Do you, a lot of people don't like conflict though. I mean, good people who have voices that want to be heard, they're afraid of, of conflict because they're, they're afraid of the stress of, of the honesty. I mean, you know, like what do you, what do you do? What do you say to someone who's, what do you, what do you think if there's a workshop? Has this ever happened where, People are, are getting into it. It's going well, but there's some shy people in the corner who are still just not sure what they want to say and they're still waiting to see how it plays yeah, out. Do you yeah. observe that? Uh, definitely, yes. Do you try and like bring them in? Absolutely, you... yes. I mean, that's the very basic rule. Everybody has to speak. Everybody's got to speak. Everybody has to speak. We don't start on this. Everybody speaks. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so. I mean, there's no point of me because I, I told you, like, I'm not going to give any solutions. Like, it's all coming from you because no consultant knows the company better than the employees. Nor should they pretend to, right? Yes, yes. Okay. Well, that's fair. I mean, and then as a facilitator, what is what is the, the biggest challenge um, once everyone started voicing their opinion? Like, what do you okay. do with that? Like, I mean, how do you know, what if, what if, what if you do your workshop and then, you know, everyone has this great cathartic day, but then it's, you know, business as usual after, after Diksha is gone? Well, I think like, yeah, that is a challenge. Definitely. But, uh, like, um, how do I manage conflict? Is, is that your question? Or like, no, no, but how do you, how do you feel when you're done with the workshop? Like, maybe it's a better way. Do you have hope that, that, that they're going to continue with what they've learned? Or do you, do you sometimes get the vibe um, that some are more successful than others? Yeah. I mean, you can usually make that out. Yeah. Right? Yes. That, uh, you know, why the company is into it. Yeah. Um, and yes, I mean, that. but with some organizations, you know, beforehand, because it's going to be a long relationship, they're going to come back to you after three months. And they really have a long-term plan. With some, they want to try for the first time and then see how it goes. And um, and and for some workshops, the very purpose, like if it's a team-building workshop, you know, its purpose is only one day. Yeah. Like I mean, of course, it's gonna like follow up the next coming few days, but we are not really coming to a business decision in that workshop. So. I mean, it's it's less of long term engagement, but with some business, with some workshops, you know that there's there's a goal that has to be achieved after mm -hmm. that. 
So, um, yes, that's a challenge. But I think I've been lucky with most companies. They've been in touch after the first workshop and we, you know, continue to have conversations around it. There's always a post-workshop analysis. There is always feedback coming from both sides. And uh, there have been follow-up workshops as well. So, um, but I do hear from co-facilitators that it's that it's always a challenge to measure how it goes yeah. in long-term engagements. Yeah. How do you feel when the workshop has gone really well and you've got a feeling that people are very grateful, very, very, like, ready for change? How does that make you feel without hearing what they actually say? What do you, what do you, how do you get satisfaction from it? Yeah, I think, I think that's, how do I get satisfaction? I don't mean that superficially, but I mean like, what are you, what are you truly most happy about when the workshop goes well? I think if some people um, really asked difficult questions, that makes me very happy. Like I think in one organ- in one organization, one of the employees actually ended up asking, you know, when his boss was sitting next to him, mm-hmm. that what do you do when you feel that you're uh senior is taking a wrong decision and you really feel that now that's a brave thing to say that is gutsy (laughs) you know and it came after an exercise that we had just done before and he was actually referring to the exercise that he felt that when they were teaming up together in this you know his 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 boss who was his teammate in this particular exercise was Mm -hmm. taking a wrong decision but we also knew that this comes up with a lot of context so, I mean, that makes me feel like, wow. And at times you do see uh, people saying some very candid things about when they don't understand cultures, you know, like uh, there was one intercultural workshop when I was Indian. Okay, so I was like taking this workshop and, and one of the people, uh, you know, one of the persons asked me that, oh, why do I feel like Indians are so, they never say the truth, you know, like they never say, but that's a very, really, but that, it, I don't, I, I never <laughs> Yeah, no, but you're Indian and you seem like you're telling the truth quite often. Yeah, but that comes from a very innocent place, Jesse. You need to realize, like, I mean, maybe he dealt with certain people in the organization that uh, he felt that okay, it's it's also it goes to a cultural graph. You know, in communication, they teach you that Indians are very high context communicators, and people in the Nordics are very low context communicators. So you will definitely find Indian people saying things. He didn't mean to say like truth, but like you will never get very direct answers in terms of yes or no from okay. an Indian. So if you ask me, do you want to have tea? Like, or do you want to have coffee? Like, it's seldom that an Indian person will, person will say yes or no in the first instance. You know? Okay. So, I mean, I'll be like, okay, if you're having coffee, I'll have it too. Or if, uh, no, I, or I'll give you some context. So there's an etiquette that's uh, a yeah, certain Yeah, it's norm. different. But if you ask, like, it's it's usually not not very, like, binary. Or what do you want to eat for lunch, yeah. you know? Yeah. Hmm. Um, no, I mean, as a facilitator, that's my first rule, you know, because, like, everything has a context. Everything. Because uh, the, the biggest problem is that people are judged all the time. People all, are judged all the time. All the freaking time. Inside work, organizations. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. What would you, we're going to wrap this up soon, but I, yes. I do want to ask a, a question for you um, going out. Um, what do you, what do you think when it's all said and done, when people have been honest, what do you think people in the world should judge each other about less? Because there's a lot of 
There's a lot of, you know, highlights of people being disgusted and upset and judgmental of different things. What's one thing that people should be more patient about and less judgmental about from your experience? Hmm. More patient about and more judgmental. Less judgmental. Less judgmental about. I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> I have to think about this, but. That's fair. But I think they should. We should generally be more patient with people who are angry in organizations. Is is that what I always feel? Like who who are short tempered or who are very um, say like show patience with anger. Show patience with anger. Totally yes yes because I think it has. A context that you have no idea about. Yeah, because yeah, anger, whether you agree on, on the, the route that someone took yeah. to get angry, obviously if they're feeling angry, that the anger itself is, is almost always honest. Yes, yes. And I think if one person is patient with that anger, it's it's like there's always a balance. Um, less judgmental. <laughs> I think about mistakes. Yeah. Yeah, because... Um, bright people make mistakes, not so bright people make mistakes, everybody makes mistakes and judging somebody on one mistake is not really good. No, it's not. Yeah, yeah. So, and I think that's what happens in organizations because everything is very like quick and result driven and okay, this person can't do this task, I'm not going to give it to, to X, Y, you know, to them again. No, like yeah. I just judged you. you, you weren't good at it at the first time. Yeah. So... That is something you need to be a little less judgmental about. Well, good. On that, on that note, um, Diksha, thank you so much for, uh, for sharing your story with us and, uh, and bringing some insight into how people can, can judge less, be more patient, and I think as a result, be, uh, be more comfortable being honest. Uh, thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Jesse. And that concludes our discussion today with Diksha. I hope you enjoyed it, and I look forward to seeing you next time on Working Wisely. In the meantime... Get your stuff done, go home, and enjoy your life.